Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Dr. Chris Masterjohn earned his PhD in nutritional sciences from the University of Connecticut in the summer of 2012. And when it comes to vitamins, nutrients, and all things supplements, Chris is one of the best and the brightest. He also has an amazing personal story about how nutrition saved him from severe mental health struggles in his teens. It's an honor to have him on the podcast today. Chris, welcome. Thank you, Jason. So let's start with your own personal journey to health and how that's evolved. Yeah, my journey started when I came out of my mother's womb, um, although it really got going when I was a teenager. And... I watched my mom go through her own health journey. So my mom had fibromyalgia. She was in pain every night. I often didn't get sleep myself because I lived in the house with her and she was just moaning in pain through the whole night. And she took matters into her own hands, did a lot of experimenting. She went on macrobiotics. She did Tai Chi. She did Qigong. She did yoga. She did herbs. She did uh, vitamins. She did all kinds of things. And I don't know exactly what in that worked, but, um, you know, her, her, like that basically disappeared. Like she moved on from being in pain every night. And so I got a a very early example to see how powerful diet and lifestyle could be in addressing chronic disease. That got me into trouble because, uh, I didn't have a lot of boundaries are drawn around what were good experiments and what were bad ones. And, uh, I got into herbs myself. I got into the zone diet. Then I read a book called Diet for New America, which convinced me that for the sake of the planet, for the sake of all the animals, and for the sake of my own health, I should go vegetarian. Actually, it was an argument for veganism, but I kind of you know, went in slowly, convinced my girlfriend to read the book, and she was like, why aren't we vegan? And so uh, then we went vegan. And that did not work out well for me at all. Um, within... So one of the major things that happened was I had a collection of anxiety disorders, probably all of the ones in the textbooks, (laughs) that started in my teenage years, but they had kind of been nuisances before that. They got to the point where I was, it was never diagnosed with anything, but I was probably borderline psychotic. Um, I was afraid to eat all the food in my house. Um, An example of what might happen to me is... I might, believing that my food was drugged or poisoned, I would start looking for the evidence and I wouldn't be able to find it. So I would keep looking until I accidentally like punctured the seal and whatever I was eating. And then I would have found the evidence and then I would be afraid to eat that, but I would be afraid to eat everything else. And so then I would get very angry that I was afraid to eat anything and I'd throw the food across the room. But then, you know, I couldn't protect myself every time. So then I would be convinced that I actually had gotten drugged or poisoned. And then I would have a panic attack and I would wind up in the emergency room. Um, I would have people that I know didn't like me that I would be actually think that I was seeing them very far away from where they would be as if they were coming after me, you know, things like that. Um, and I actually don't remember a lot from that period. I, I didn't remember that my mom had repeatedly brought me to the emergency room during peak panic attacks like many times until I was talking about it with her recently. And after thinking about it, I start to remember one time that I was in the emergency room, but I still don't remember being brought five, six, seven, eight times like she says she did. So I think my memory from that period is pretty bad too. The... 
other thing that happened was my teeth fell apart. So I went to the dentist and in one sitting, I found out that I needed two root canals and had over a dozen cavities. And at this point, I'm 21-ish. So I'm kind of old to have like, I mean, even if seven-year-old shouldn't have that many cavities, but I'm, and for a health conscious 21-year-old who's not loading up on sugar, uh, that's a pretty bad tooth situation, right? So I really want to fix my teeth. The mental stuff, I didn't really expect to be able to fix. Like I just figured I had mental problems, you know, this is something you got to live with. Um, but I was, I was kind of in the market to find something to fix my extraordinary rate of tooth decay. So at that time, I'm working in the dining hall as an undergraduate. My boss, he was into drinking raw milk and the farm that he got his raw milk from in New Hampshire had a pamphlet that talked about why you should drink raw milk, but it talked about some other things. And one of those things was the work of Weston Price. He was the first research director of what became the American Dental Association, and he worked for 25 years doing laboratory and clinical research on the causes and consequences of tooth decay. And after those 25 years, one of the things that he was convinced of was that he needed to find people that didn't have tooth decay in order to really study this because he wanted controls. And at that time, in America, the nutrition was probably the worst it's ever been because this was in the 1920s and 30s where we've learned the technology to refine foods. Well, first we learned the technology to refine foods and then we learned about the vitamins. And so he's working around the time that they are discovering the vitamins. And so no one's really conscious of um, you know, like why you shouldn't mostly eat refined flour and sugar as 90% of your diet. And then also with the Great Depression, it became hard to eat good food as well. And, you know, in the Depression, my grandmother, typical meal for her was Wonder Bread with uh, like Crisco and sugar on top or something like that. So everyone had terrible tooth decay in the United States. And he wanted to find people that didn't have tooth decay to serve as his controls. And he kind of inadvertently became a pioneer in nutritional anthropology because he read that there from other anthropologists that there were groups of people who had not come in contact with modern society who happened to have a lot better teeth than everyone in modern society had. And so he said, I'm going to go find all those people and I'm going to figure out why they don't have tooth decay. And so he did this around the time of the nutritional transition from traditional diets all over the world with shipping and ports opening up, all traditional diets everywhere were converting to what he called the foods, the displacing foods of modern commerce, the white flour, the white sugar, the canned goods, syrups, etc. And so he went to try to find groups where uh, a port just opened up in town and he could compare like one village where they didn't have the port to another village where they did have very similar genetics you know, what was the difference in the foods they were consuming, et cetera, et cetera. And so to kind of cut that story short, one of the major things that I learned from Price's book was not just that refined flour and refined sugar is bad for you, which to most of us at this point is sort of obvious, <laughs> right? Um, uh, that was the unsurprising part. The surprising part was in the absence of white flour and white sugar, what were the things they were consuming that led to thriving health? And by the way, one of the things that he found was, even though he went to study tooth decay, one of the things that he found was across the board, mental and physical health was in peak shape when people were consuming their traditional diets. And all of it fell apart when they started consuming the the displacing foods of modern commerce. So what were they eating? And one of the points that Price made was that they put extraordinary effort and will into procuring foods that were good sources of fat-soluble vitamins. And they didn't know about fat-soluble vitamins, but they knew what foods would promote health, and they went out of their way to get them. So this was knowledge that they had accumulated over generations of what do they need. It it wasn't just they had to not eat white flour and white sugar by accident of not having invented it. They knew that they needed to eat certain foods, and they needed to go out of their way to get them in order to be healthy, in order to prevent diseases. And these foods, Price put them into four categories. The, they were um, organ meats and eggs he put in one category. 
dairy products with the fat he put in a second category. The animal life of the sea, fish and especially shellfish, he put in a third category. And small whole animals he put in a fourth category. So like insects and small frogs and things like that that you'd eat whole. And he, not every group ate all of those things, but they all ate at least from one of those categories and they all went out of their way to get those foods. So I'm reading this book and I'm like, first of all, I, you know, when I went vegan, I had no consciousness that there were vitamins in meat. Um, <laughs> meat, you know, meat, just, just regular old meat is a good source of many vitamins. But I kind of had this very simplistic idea that meat is where you got your protein, milk is where you got your calcium, vegetables are where you got your vitamins. And we don't need as much protein as everyone says we do. We don't need as much calcium as everyone says we do. So we just get the vitamins from the, from the uh, broccoli, which has enough protein, right? right? And so I'm reading this. I'm, not only were people getting important vitamins from animal products, but even when I was an omnivore and even all my omnivorous friends weren't eating organ meats. They weren't eating small animals with the bones. They weren't eating uh, – even shellfish we're needing too uh, too much of. So a lot of these foods that were especially nutrient dense were things that I wasn't that I'd never been eating. So I completely changed my diet around in order to incorporate these principles. I started eating during my recovery from veganism. I was eating a pound of buffalo liver a week for a very long time. Wow. For example, I instead of being concerned about not eating too many eggs. I made sure to eat at least three eggs a day, a lot of things like that. And there were, there were many things, but it was a, it was in general to focus on nutrient dense foods in general, but especially nutrient dense animal products, especially animal products that most people don't eat like organ meats and shellfish. And during this time, the value proposition here was that I would fix my teeth. I read Price's book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, because I read about in this pamphlet that my boss gave me that he had found the way to complete immunity to tooth decay, right? So I'm, I'm like, immunity to tooth decay? Like, having just got out of the dentist meeting with two root canals I needed and over a dozen cavities, I'm like, I want in on that, right? And so what I never expected was to fix my mental health. But what happened was I was in the dining hall at one point, I see this guy pick up a stack of plates to take one from the middle. And I look at the guy, give him a funny look, not directly to him, just inside my head, I give him a funny look. Walk away, and I'm like, that guy's pretty weird. And, you know, why didn't he just take the plate on the top? And then I think about it for three or four seconds, and all of a sudden it comes back to me that two or three months before that, I had always taken the plate from the middle of the stack. I had done crazier things than that. Like I would spend 20 minutes looking for a glass out of the clean glasses that was clean enough for me to drink out of. And what was crazy was I don't even know when I got better. Like I, I don't remember the transition point. I just realized at one point that a couple months ago I had been crazy and that I had forgotten about it. <laughs> and so so I don't know if I got better like a minute after I started eating better and then just in that minute forgot about it or if I gradually and linearly over the course of three months got better and in pr the same proportion I gradually and, and linearly forgot about it. I don't know. It could be one of those or something in between or whatever. Um, but, to, but to just suddenly remember that I was that I was crazy three months ago and that I can't relate to that anymore was or you know it was just a sudden realization that I had undergone a complete mental health revolution and how long ago was this this was like 15 wow. 16 years ago and you feel great today yeah, I mean, uh, there's things I could feel better about, but I'm not crazy. Well, you're on Twitter. <laughs> you're on Twitter a lot, so there are things there that, you know. But, wow, that's just a pretty powerful story. I'll just pause there for a minute. Um, Let that soak in. So I have, to, I have to ask about the when you mentioned Root Canal. I don't know. Are you familiar with that documentary on Netflix that got yanked? Have you heard about this? I, I am not familiar with the documentary. So there's a, there was a documentary on Netflix that actually, like, I think is gone because dental association or what have you complained or who knows, right. but essentially the documentary made the argument that like all sorts of bad things happen to, happen to people with root canals gone bad. Yeah. That, that's actually based on Price's research. Yes. Uh, the research that he did before 
he traveled the world and became a nutritional anthropologist. And the and the idea being, it's the one thing that any other part of your body, something's dead, it gets removed. Root canal is essentially like a dead root; it's not being removed, and everything's connected. And all sorts of bad things could. I'm trying to generalize yeah, here. Could pri- happen. Pri- so Price's theory was that um, the gum that they put in their uh, denta percha, I think it's called, uh, that they fill up the tooth with, can't permeate all the dental tubules, and which are which are kind of like the capillaries of the teeth, sort of. They're little tiny tubules that provide very fine threaded nourishment. And so his theory was that. If you can't get a way to completely fill that up, then it will be infected. Right. And that you may be fine if your immune system contains the infection, but if your immune system doesn't contain the infection, then you might not be fine. And he had some really fascinating evidence where he could take chronic diseases of people who had had root canals and take their teeth out and put them under the skin of rabbits, and those rabbits would get those diseases. Yes. Like if the person had arthritis, he'd take out the tooth and put it in the rabbit, and the rabbit would get arthritis. That's mind-blowing. But if he, but if, and he did, had good controls. Like he'd put other random stuff in the uh, under the skin of the rabbits, and it wouldn't produce those things. Um, there, was, there was a guy, George Meinig, who wrote a book called Root Canal Cover-Up, and I don't remember off the top of my head his credentials, but they're extremely credible. He was a root canal specialist, and I believe he was at one point the president of the, they're called endodontists, of their professional association, if I remember correctly. And uh, he was retired when he wrote the book, right? So their whole livelihood would be destroyed if people were convinced that root canals were intrinsically sure. harmful, right? And so you you can't take anyone's opinion seriously unless they're retired, right? Like so. so let me knowing all that you know now, would you get a root canal or no? Um, I I, I don't know. So that's what I was going to say. Is unfortunately George Mining is dead, and so I I would love to be able to to pick his brain about whether root canals are any safer now than they were when he wrote his book. And then they were in Price's time. I mean, his opinion when he wrote the book, which is a, w- a while ago, um, was that they weren't. But it's, yeah, I think it's it's too bad that there is, like, not really anyone who has the expertise to evaluate the current state of root canal fields. Because Pr- Price's point wasn't that the tooth root is dead, therefore it should be taken out. That wasn't his point. His point was that you couldn't fill up the dental tubules and prevent bacterial growth. There. Right, right. And so that it was bound to be infected inside the tooth. That was his point. Um, you know, like someone with a prosthetic knee has a dead thing inside them. That's fair. You know? And so I, I don't think Price, if he were alive today, would have said no one can do root canals. I think he would have said, well, have you fixed this thing with the root canals yet? You know? <laughs> One of the problems is that None of the cases where people were developing those diseases was it a open and shut case that they would develop the disease. It was just that they could. And so it's hard to really prove that. I mean, it's hard to prove it in the sense that um, not everyone's going to get diseases and you don't know when they're going to get a disease and you don't know like how, how long uh, would you have to wait after someone gets a root canal to, to try to show that. Price, Price's evidence was basically like case series of people who had chronic disease where he could then do experiments showing that the disease was caused by the tooth or imply it anyway, suggest it by causing that disease in the rabbit. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, today, I think if you wanted to provide really good evidence, the standards today would be you'd randomize people to root canals or a sham procedure and... uh, blinded ideally and (laughs) and then like measure statistically uh significant changes in disease rates between the two groups and no one's done that maybe someone's listening is getting getting inspired right now yeah yeah yeah, maybe (laughs) um i probably would err on the side of not having the root canal but i i don't feel really confident about that and i i wish that there were someone with the level of expertise that george mining had and the level of openness and willingness to, I mean, you know, someone who like has an alternate, like a backup plan if they right. lose their job, uh, who could, you know, really study this. Right. 
So you mentioned overcoming uh, some mental health issues through the power of food, through the power of nutrition. I think a lot of people uh, today suffer from anxiety. People can't get to sleep. Uh, what would you say to those people in terms of what they, and I know it's hard to generalize, but if, if you could, what should those people be eating? What supplements, in your opinion, work for people? And I'll put two buckets, like anxiety and sleep, but they seem to be two, two pain yeah. points for a lot of people right now. First of all, I think that it's important to acknowledge that what nutrition is doing is it's it's affecting the physiological milieu in which everything else in your brain is operating. And it's primarily going to affect the predisposition towards maybe not even anxiety, in some cases anxiety, but in some cases mental stickiness that might trap anxiety-producing thoughts and things like that. But it's always going to be the case that attitude and mental framework and cognitive therapy and, you know, all all of those things are very, very real and not operating in a vacuum. So basically those those things that address the specific content of your brain are operating within predispositions. Like, for example, there is a spectrum of alertness where on one end of the spectrum, you're fully asleep. In the middle, you're awake and alert. And on the other end, you're in panic, uh, which is basic, which is arguably a state of hyper alertness. And then there's another spectrum where your mind can be mentally sticky or it can be mentally fluid. And that might just be a difference in personality in the middle of that spectrum. But on one end, you can be completely psychotic. Schizophrenics, for example, can have equal and opposite symptoms where they can have uh, something called flight of ideas where there's, you know, every fraction of a second, there's a new idea that's streaming into their mind um, and they can't grab onto any of them. And they're just all just hitting their mind at massive speed. And then there's rigidity of thoughts on the other side of that. They're both equally psychotic, uh, but they're just on opposite poles of that of that spectrum. Um, Those are going to be influenced by nutrition. And then the content of what you think about is is going to be just as important, right? So for example, let's say that your mental framework is one where you are predisposed to worry about worrying. So the way you get into a panic attack, for example, sure. is uh, a panic attack is basically believing your own bullshit. Yeah. So you, um, you worry about something and then you are, you're convinced in your mind that you are justified in worrying about that thing and that you should worry about worrying. And then you worry about worrying about worrying. And then you worry about that and then you worry about that and then you worry about that. And each set of worrying warps you into an increased state of panic until you actually enter into the panic attack. That's going to be influenced by both of those spectrums, right? Because if a worry-inducing thought comes into your mind and you can ignore it and just let it go, whoosh, you're not going to worry about worrying because you forgot that you worried by the time you worried, right? It just like it entered your mind, it left your mind. If your mind is mentally sticky, then your the worry-inducing thought is going to come into your mind, it's going to stay there, and it's going to give you opportunity to worry about worrying. But you're not going to worry about worrying, even if it's stuck there, unless your mental framework is that you worry about worrying, right? Like if your mental framework is that worrying is utter bullshit, and I do not believe my own bullshit, then even if it stays there, you're going to be like, screw you worrying, like get out of here, right? And so the mental framework is super, super important. And that the importance of that never goes away with, with good nutrition. But the other thing is your baseline level of alertness is super important here. So um, you want to be alert, but you don't want to be hyper alert. And if you are, that creates um, being hyper alert is almost like being panicky, you know, like sticking your head out, like looking for every possible (laughs) input that might be an issue to pay to pay attention to, for example. Um, So one of the things that stimulates alertness is histamine. In the brain. And that's why if you take Benadryl, you can fall asleep because histamine is a wakefulness signal and an alertness signal. And if you block the histamine receptors, um, you, you go to sleep. 
But there's a couple lines of evidence. The evidence isn't super strong, but there's a couple of interesting lines of evidence that histamine plays a role in, in panic attacks um, or generalized anxiety disorder. One of those is that there are some classes of, of antihistamines that are used to treat anxiety disorders successfully. And the other is a very interesting study where they put people on histamine-free diets because you can eat histamine in your mm-hmm. food. And they were trying to solve their skin problems. And no one's skin problems went away. But there were three people in this study that had like 12 people in it. There were three people who had panic attacks. And all three of them, their panic attacks stopped when they went on the histamine-free diet. Hmm. So that, And so that's very interesting. Can you just explain to people briefly like a, his, a low histamine diet? Just Yeah, so his, histamine is made from the amino acid histidine, which is why they sound similar to each other. And all amino acids are building blocks of protein, so all your amino acids come from the protein, the food you eat. Now, you can make histamine out of histidine, but so can a bunch of bacteria. And also, if the food is exposed to things that promote degradation, such as cooking, for a very long amount of time, you can also get some spontaneous conversion of histidine to histamine. And so histamine tends to be in fermented foods because the bacteria produce it from the protein in that food. Uh, But you can also get some accumulation in very slow-cooked foods. And you will always have more in foods that are not fresh than in foods that are fresh. And then there are some foods that happen to be very high. So, for example, salmon tends to always have natural histamine-producing bacteria um, native to it. And so salmon, if you... If it's not super fresh, it's going to be pretty high in histamine. And if it's an issue, I, like for for me, just because I you can get scombroid poisoning from salmon in the extreme case, which involves puking and diarrhea at the same time. So whenever whenever I eat salmon, like I buy it fresh frozen and sure. I thaw it out in water right before I eat it because uh, I'm probably not going to get scombroid poisoning, but I'd rather not sure. rather not risk it, you know. Um, so, so anyway, let's, let's go back to your original question, which is anxiety. What should you do about it? Well, let's talk about reducing mental stickiness first. So this isn't directly getting at anxiety. It's getting at the thing that makes it hard to get rid of anxiety-producing thoughts and thought patterns. And that's how you control your mental stickiness. Your mental stickiness is largely controlled by dopamine And it's controlled by a process called methylation. Methylation is a process that's supported by B vitamins, especially folate, which is vitamin B9, especially vitamin B12, especially choline. And then there are are, uh, a few other B vitamins that play supportive roles, but those are the main ones. And the more you methylate dopamine, the more mentally fluid you are. The, more, the less you methylate dopamine, the more mentally sticky you are. And there's an, an amino acid, glycine, that is in the protein in the food you eat. The best sources of it are skin and bones, so anything that's rich in collagen. And most of us don't get enough glycine. And if you don't have enough glycine, you're going to be more prone to overmethylating. And if you overmethylate dopamine, you could get too mentally fluid which we would call easily distracted. So basically you could think of the methyl-supporting nutrients, folate, B12, and choline, and their adjunctive supporters in the other B vitamins. You could think of those as being pro-methylation and pro-mental fluidity. And you could think of glycine as being not really anti-methylation, but protecting you from going overboard into territory of too much distraction so would you throw grass-fed collagen in there then uh, yeah yeah well um I, I don't know i think someone with anxiety to the extent it's affected by this is probably going to be more on the side of low methylation but i think that you should get enough glycine got it you know so it's <laughs> so, I, so i wouldn't treat the anxiety with glycine but you should get enough glycine got it so what about like hemp and cbd seems to be so cbd is is doing something different cbd is acting on cannabinoid receptors and the natural 
endogenous thing that acts on cannabinoid receptors is things that's made from arachidonic acid, which is a fatty acid that you get from liver and egg yolks, which also happen to be really good for methyl donor nutrients. Um, and yeah, that's that's acting on pathways that are going to decrease anxiety. Um, so in rats, they decrease what is the rat version of the human cortisol. And so they're, they're probably acting in a large degree on the adrenal stress response. And that's going to play a different role, but that's also a, definitely a role in anxiety. So they, they um, I, I wouldn't think of them as primarily acting on the mental stickiness part, although they, um, well, actually, yeah, actually, cannabinoids do increase dopamine signaling. And so I'm not sure exactly how they'd affect that system, but they would probably play into sure. it a little bit. Yeah. In the brain, the primary way that you get rid of histamine is also with methylation. And so that other spectrum of uh, hyper alertness, to the extent that that's playing into anxiety, that, that also will be supported by methylation. So, yeah, good. So b b before I go to sleep, I do want to talk about MTHFR, which like, what is it, like a third of the population has? And, and it depends how you define has. <laughs> right. <laughs> depends uh, on what the definition of is is th that's fair and and then homocysteine and methylation i was telling you offline that i had crazy high homocysteine now it's in check so just talk about methylation mt mthfr and homocysteine and sort of how the briefly i know it's complicated yeah but yeah so there's yeah there's a lot of people running around saying i have mthfr um, everyone has MTHFR. It's an enzyme that we all have. There are some variants in the gene for it that that some of us have and some of us don't. Uh, but even there, almost everyone has at least one of those variants. So uh, there's two major ones, and they're distributed in the population where there's basically six combinations that are mostly equally distributed in the populations, 15-ish percent of people in each one, you know, give or take. And it's almost linear, where it just goes from very high MTHFR activity to a little bit less, to a little bit less, to a little bit less, until you get to very low MTHFR activity. So if you define, and I was serious before, if you define has MTHFR as has at least one of the variants that decrease activity, then you're really looking at something closer to 85% of the population. If you want to use some kind of cutoff, like I'm mostly concerned with people who have at least 50% decrease in activity, it's going to be smaller. It's going to be mm -hmm. closer to half the population. Um, if you're going to use a more extreme cutoff, like 75%, then you're looking at something like 15% of the population. So it really depends where you define has. And also, there are other genes that vary, that have common variations that impact the same process. So there's variations in the transporter that gets folate into the cell. We should say MTHFR is an enzyme that helps use folate to support methylation. And it does that by making methylfolate. And it makes methylfolate from a precursor that it gets from another enzyme called MTHFD1. And that's highly variable in the population. That can be decreased by genes up to 34%. Folate's got to get into the cell to go through either of those enzymes. And the transporter is highly variable in the population. That can be decreased up to 50%. So you don't even know what your true decrease is just by knowing your MTHFR activity. You could have... You could be one of the mild ones, but you could have a big decrease in the folate transporter or something like so, that. So let me ask you this then. We're, we're in this age where we've got genetics, we've got bloods, microbiome, telomeres, go on and on of things available for testing. In your estimation, what are the handful of tests or markers that everyone should kind of look at for, for overall well-being? Is it for heart, LPA? Is it uh, homocysteine? Is it uh, vitamin D? Just more general, yeah. like overall health. Like, because a lot of people out there, it's like, okay, what do I do with this? I, I have a doctor who's probably a Western doctor or LabCorp or whatever. I just need to show up and say, all right, here are the five things just I want to screen for. Yeah. Um, I, d I don't really think there are. 
So I think that's very contextual. And, you know, if you want to generalize, um, like probably, I believe the, it, probably the I, best answers are the things you're going to get anyway, right? Like you're, someone's going to measure your cholesterol. Right, but that's someone's controversial. Gonna a, Some people say like, eh, it's not the whole story. Then you go into particle size. and Yeah, sure. But, but um, you know, for, for, for cholesterol, like I see the value in doing the additional testing, but in most people it's not going to matter because most people who have a very high total to HDL cholesterol ratio, which you can get with the standard cheap measurements, most of those people are going to have very high ApoB mm-hmm. and LDL particle size. Um, and so it is good to do the other testing because if there is discordance between those things, you'd want to know about it. Um, but if there's not, you can probably just get away with, you know, most of the people who would have a high ApoB are not going to have a total DHL cholesterol ratio of three and a total cholesterol under 200. Right. Um, and so I, I would not put LDL particle size. If, if I have five things to say that everyone should get, I'm not going to put LDL particle size there. And I, I don't know. Do, do you want to make rules like, can I say a CBC? Because I think that everyone should get a complete blood count in a metabolic panel. You can say anything you and, want. Yeah. And like, I think everyone should go for an annual physical Actually, this is a good point. So I have I have uh, <laughs> I I have consulting clients who, you know, have taken into their into their own hands and who have money, uh, to get like really expensive panels of amino acids and organic a- and organic urinary organic acids that I think are very useful. Don't get me wrong, but might might spend a thousand dollars on these panels every every quarter, that's, that's, and they haven't yeah. gotten a C, and they haven't gotten a CBC or a metabolic panel for six years, and so I think I think it, that's a little backwards. Like I actually do think that the stuff that your doctor is going to run on you anyway, your conventional doc is probably the most important stuff to have. That is, but also it's cheap, and there's no arguments, and so you should get that. But if the question is what are the five most important things that you're going to get that you're probably not going to have ordered for you by your doctor? Right. That might be a better question. Yeah. Um, or get a better answer out of me anyway. Um, <laughs> All good. I, I still think it's so contextual. Like, it, I mean, first of all, you have to decide what your resources are. Because if you got a lot of money, then um, you should just get uh, – I can recommend like 20 tests that you should get. And you should get them because – a comprehensive nutritional screening is going to require a lot of testing. And if you, I really think that like if, if money were not an issue, everyone should do comprehensive nutritional screening at least once because um, at least once, and if not periodically, whenever they have their health change or they go through a different developmental life stage, like they hit menopause or something. Let's say if someone wants to do that once, where do you even go to get it? Yeah, so I I have a um, I have a guide to this called Testing Nutritional Status: The Ultimate Cheat Sheet, and I put together a list of what I would consider a comprehensive nu- nutritional screening in that, and it basically draws from the Genova Ion Panel with forty amino acids, which is a you can get that you can have a doctor order it. You could um, it would be best to have a doctor order it. You can order it yourself from like directlabs.com, but you'd have to arrange a blood draw with Quest or LabCorp, and that'd be hard. Um, And then there's a bunch of tests that you can get either from LabCorp or Quest. Um, But I'm actually going to be, I don't, I haven't done this yet, but I'm going to be working with some labs to do custom panels that are what I would consider the best panels. Um, And hopefully I can do that in a way that is integrated with their blood draws because, um, if you order tw- like 20 different individual tests, you can draw a lot of excess you'll, blood. You'll be there for, <laughs> yeah. for an, an hour yeah, giving yeah, yeah. blood. Yeah. So I want to go back to sleep. Okay. People who struggle sleeping, uh, specifically supplements. Yeah. There's, you know, there's melatonin, there's magnesium, there's GABA, there's, I can go on and on. Like, what do you recommend to people who have trouble sleeping? Um, okay. Does this, do we have a hypothetical person or do we address them all? 
Um, can I ask you questions about this person who has trouble sleeping? I think a lot of people. I think I'm just I'm generalizing. Like, does this person have trouble uh, falling asleep or staying asleep? I think it's or both. Everyone. I think it's everyone. I think a lot of people have that. Okay, so I mean, first you have to get a sense of of um, what your problem is. So I think you have a different problem if you're not falling asleep from if you're not staying asleep. And I think you need to look at the regularity of your sleep. So if you're not getting tired at about the same time every day and you're not waking up at about the same time every day without an alarm clock, um, and most people don't even have a test of that, of without an alarm clock, they don't even know when they'd wake up. Um, but if, if, if those things don't apply, then you don't really have working circadian rhythm. And so I think that's an issue. I would start before getting into supplements, I would start with basic hygiene around sleep. So you should have, um, you should be getting morning sunlight every morning by ideally by going outside for a half hour or so. And that should be at around the same time every day. So even if you don't wake up at the same time, you should make some time where you are up uh, you know, for example, one day you get up at six, next day you get up at seven, next day you get up at eight thirty, next day you get up at six thirty. Well, you're always up at nine. So nine o'clock every day, you get some outdoor sunshine for a half hour. If you can't do that, get like a light therapy lamp or something and put it in your office cubicle or whatever you need to do to try to blast your eyes with some very bright blue light uh, at the beginning of the day. Two to four hours before you go to sleep, you should be blue blocking, um, whether it's with glasses or special lights or software for your computer or phone, you should be dramatically reducing the blue light in your environment for two to four hours before you go to bed. I think it's ridiculous to start taking supplements if you haven't done that. Some people might not be might not need to do that, and those are the people that don't have any sleeping problems. Right. Right? Um, so if you're not doing that, like, you should you're not at the point where you should be addressing things with supplements. Um, most people who can't fall asleep need a psychological winding down routine. Not everyone needs a psychological winding down routine, but those are the po people that don't have any sleeping problems. Right? <laughs> so um, if you're thinking about work when you're, when you're in your bed instead of sleeping and you were doing work five minutes before you went to bed, that's why you're thinking about work. Um, you might need, you might need hours of distracting. And actually I think this is a, a big issue where I have a lot of disagreements with other people. So there's a lot of people who think that, um, you should avoid screens at night. And I think that's extremely bad advice because it greatly limits the tools that people have to psychologically wind down. You know, like you can meditate in pitch black darkness. Um, but, but Look, if you have blue blocking glasses on, you're getting less blue light by staring at your phone and playing Tetris than you are if you're reading a paperback book by candlelight. <laughs> and mo most people can't read a book for that long, right? Like um, a, a lot of people, you, like your eyes get tired when you're reading a book for more than 20 minutes, or maybe it's even shorter than that for some people. But it might take two hours to get your brain to stop focusing on work, especially if you have a lot of mental stickiness going on. So I think that um, a combination of TV, movies, video games, and reading, I put reading at the end because I think it's the most like physically tiring, inducing mm -hmm. thing. Um, and I'll make one other point that I disagree on. So I was listening to a podcast with a sleep expert recently who was saying that you shouldn't do reading in your bed. I think there are a lot of people that when they read and it starts making them fall asleep will ruin that effect if they get up and do something else, even if it's reading in the living room and getting up and going to sleep in their bed. Right. And so I actually think most people should probably end the night reading in their bed um, very close to a nightstand where they can just put the book down or even just fall asleep with it if they have to. Um, so I think those are the basic things. But you asked me about supplements. So first of all, make sure you're eating enough food. I know I had a problem for a long time where if I did not eat enough food, I would have insomnia. But if I didn't measure and track the food that I was eating, the only way for me to prevent the insomnia was to overshoot how much food I had to eat, which would make me fat over time. <laughs> I don't have to do that anymore, but that's because I did a lot of tracking to really get in intuitive touch with how much food I'm eating. Um, a lot of people undereat, and I would say that that's one of the biggest things. Carbohydrate is a tricky issue. So some people um, 
on people on low carbohydrate diets, ketogenic diets can increase the GABA levels in their brain, and GABA is a calming neurotransmitter. And so some people sleep better on ketogenic diets. But a lot of people who have sleeping problems, I think it's from not having enough carbohydrates stored in their liver to keep their blood sugar stable through the night. And in those cases, I think this is especially true if people wake up in the middle of the night. Quite often that's because their blood sugar dropped because they didn't have easy access to stored carbohydrate in their liver. So I think there's a lot of people who need to eat more carbohydrate, um, even if some people benefit by going very low carbohydrate. And I think probably the worst place to be is in the middle ground where you're not ketogenic, but you're very low carb. Like if you're eating like 70 grams of carbohydrate a day, uh, if you sleep great on that amount, more power to you. But uh, a lot of people there are not going to be reaping the benefits of increased GABA that would come on a ketogenic diet. And they're also not repleting. They haven't trained their body to survive on lower carbohydrate amounts that they would get, uh, that they could get away with if they were eating keto. Um, but they're not eating enough carbohydrate to actually fuel the carbohydrate demand that they have. So I think that's a big issue. Then, oh, sleeping in a cool room is yeah. very important. Um, and then covering those, the most important supplements are going to be B6 and things that support methylation because um, both B6 and methylation are required to produce melatonin. And I suspect there's another category of people who wake up in the middle of the night who didn't have enough melatonin precursor to keep their melatonin um, being made through the night because you basically got to keep making it through the night in order to, to initially fall asleep and then stay asleep. And um, part of that is that you need to get the, the amino acid tryptophan into your brain in enough supply. Tryptophan comes from the protein that you eat, um, but there are basically two ways to boost its tra transport into the brain. One is exercise and the other is carbohydrate. And you can do that at any time of the day. So um, it doesn't have to be at night. It, just like a, a meal, a high carbohydrate meal at breakfast or a good dose of exercise earlier in the day should be able to get that transported into the brain. Uh, but then you need to have enough of the B vitamins that support vitamin B6 as well as um, the methylation supporting nutrients that we're talking about before in order to get the actual melatonin produced. But you're not a fan of taking melatonin per se. Um, I'm not against taking melatonin, but not I on think, a regular basis. Yeah, I think if you're, t I think if you're taking melatonin every day to fall asleep, then you have sleeping issues that you haven't fixed, right? Like how to make your own melatonin, right? I don't think there's good evidence for it, but there is some suggestions from animal experiments that chronic use of melatonin over a very long period of time can start causing degeneration of 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 the melatonin producing pathways. Right. So, um, yeah, to me, melatonin is a Band-Aid solution. It's something that you can use while you're fixing your sleeping problems when you haven't resolved certain issues yet. And it's also very good to keep as a travel aid if you're changing time zones to help you readjust right. to a new time zone. So what other vitamins, herbs, supplements are you particularly excited about right now? I just, I, you know, I follow you on Twitter and Instagram, one of my favorites to follow. Guys, if you're into this stuff, this is this is the man. Um, NR and NAD plus and what's going and just talk a little bit about that and what's particularly interesting with regards to longevity. Yeah, sure. So there's no evidence in humans that um, that NR does. NR is nicotinamide riboside, which is a type of niacin, which is vitamin B3. Um, there's currently no evidence in humans that it does anything good. Um, but there's some pretty promising experiments in animals. And there's also the known fact that NAD levels, which is a derivative of niacin, which plays an important role in energy metabolism and also plays an important role in DNA repair and lengthening your telomeres, which are things that get shorter as you age and which need to stay long for you to keep going. Yes. Um, and so, you know, the, what we know from the mechanisms is that it supports longevity through DNA repair and lengthening telomeres. And what we know from 
observing aging humans is that it declines with age, and that it and so it presumably declining NAD levels play a role in the lack of longevity that comes with aging and dying. Um, but but yeah, right right now all we have for positive results is um, yes, you can increase NAD levels with it. And in animal, in certain animal experiments, there are some very promising results. Um, so I, I think it's going out on a limb to say that you should take it for anti-aging. I had a recent post which you know why it was the best one to take for anti-aging, but that was that was that wasn't really about why I think everyone should take it for anti-aging. That was why if you're going to take niacin for anti-aging, why that one's best. Right. Um, it was true niacin, I think. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. So so the thing is. Um, there's there's basically four main forms of niacin on the market, uh, with with some variations. So there's there's one called niacin, which if you ask a nutritionist, niacin refers to all forms of niacin plus one sixtieth of the tryptophan in your diet, which is the amino acid that you can use to make some of your own niacin. But if you go to a supplement store or you ask a doctor, niacin means nicotinic acid, which the medical establishment renamed niacin in, I think, the 40s because they didn't want people to associate eating well with smoking because nicotinic acid sounds like nicotine. <laughs> um, so they renamed it niacin. And, and from a medical perspective, niacin is a drug that you use to lower your blood lipids because that's what it does when you use it in extremely high doses. Um, anyway, so there's niacin nicotinic acid. That's one form. That form causes flushing. It's the only one that causes flushing, like redness and itching, for example, at very high doses. And because of that, there's all sorts of spinoffs of it, like there's slow release and extended release, etc. And those are all different forms of nicotinic acid. Then there's niacinamide, or which is the scientific name is nicotinamide. Then there's nicotinamide riboside, and then there's nicotinamide mononucleotide. People call nicotinamide. NMR. Yeah, yeah. NMN. So NMN, there's N yes. NR and N NMN. NMN yeah. yeah. So look, NR is um, none of these things. NR and NMN are not found in significant quantities in foods. NMN is there's some NMN in food. There's traces of NR in milk, but they're not major forms in foods. Um, they both of them are more easily converted into NAD than the other two forms are without being excreted. So you're going, because uh, because of that, you're going to get better NAD boosting effects of taking NR or NMN. NR is studied a little bit better than NMN is in humans. And I suspect that if you take NMN, it's usually absorbed, it's usually digested to NR and absorbed as NR. So they're probably equivalent the thing is, NR is patented, and they don't license it to many people. And so you're basically buying Truniagen, or you're buying a, a derivative product that they've licensed to one or two other people. And that kind of limits you. So for example, right now, you asked me what I'm excited about. Yeah. I'm excited that I just found a company called, uh, their website is get getvitaminlab.com or something like that. Um, if you Google vitamin lab, it'll come up, but, uh, you can order custom sub custom multivitamins from them. That's cool. So Cause right, most people, the knock on multis is they don't work. Yeah. So what I'm excited right now is, um, I'm, I'm making a custom multivitamin for my girlfriend <laughs> and I'm, and I'm giving it a custom name and I'm, uh, I'm having, I'm having an artist, uh, take her picture and make like a really high quality like bitmoji kind of cartoon. Does she know all this? From it. So she, I don't know if she thinks I'm serious yet or not. <laughs> I think she might think we're joking about it. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so um, so yeah, uh, like in this supplement, I'm putting NMN in it because they have access to NMN and they can't use the NR because it's patented it. and they can't license it, right? And so it's just, it's almost just as good. So. Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not super against NMN. I just think the, there's more evidence for NR. You know, if you can afford it and the way in which you would use it, it makes sense to use NR. Um, I've played. I have some myself, and I'm playing around with it. Um, yeah, th that's my so, thoughts. On so that. my last question. Uh, I feel like we could just go on for hours, but unfortunately, we can't on, the, on this episode. We'll have you back though. Yeah. Um, 
where do you think the conversation is going to be like a year from now in, on, in, on in wellness in general? Like we're in this exciting age, but you know, we're talking personalization. We've got more testing available. Um, there, there are more studies coming out every day. Some of them flawed, which I follow you on Twitter. I know which ones are flawed. Um, what, what do you think we're going to be talking about a year from now? Yeah, I think we're at the very beginning of the curve of personalization. So right now, I mean, we've been doing personalization for a while and it's been pretty bad quality. But um, I think one of the things I'm really excited about is that Veritas is offering whole genome sequencing that they believe they can get down to $200 within five years. Wow. Right now it costs $1,500 um, for their basic thing. And it's up to close to $3,000 if you want like diagnostic capabilities for rare diseases. And then there's an in-between one. Um, but I'm super excited about that because like 23andMe and Ancestry, these things are, they're, they might be measuring a half a million variations, but they're optimizing for a very small handful of those. And the data on the other ones are kind of like the accuracy isn't, you know, it's a little, a little questionable because they're not optimizing for those things. But also there's 3 billion nucleotides in the human genome. To measure 500,000 of them is a very small percentage. And so I think when we get whole genome sequencing, we're going to, to when that becomes a regular thing that we can do, I think that's going to be a huge advance in our ability to personalize. And then I think eventually that's going to change the whole conversation around these research studies because people are still asking the most monstrously stupid questions. Like, and a question, and a question you would ask 50 years ago that would be that would have been a smart question then is very often an incredibly stupid question today. So, for example, the question, do eggs cause heart disease, is it was a very reasonable question in 1950. It's an idiotic question now. <laughs> I just find it tremendously frustrating that people are are really that. I'm sorry, just like it's just a stupid question. Why is it a stupid question? Because there's no way on earth that eggs don't cause heart disease in some people and prevent heart disease in other people. What you want to be doing is saying to to advance the conversation. You want to be saying. How can we identify people who should eat more eggs than they currently do and other people who should eat less eggs than they currently do? And maybe maybe what you find from that is that the number of people who should eat more eggs is so small that most people should eat less or the opposite, that the, the number of people who should reduce their egg consumption is so small that most people should just eat more eggs. But for most things, it's not going to be the case. It's probably not the case for eggs. It's probably much more likely that you know, for example, someone with familial hypercholesterolemia might need to eat less eggs, fewer eggs, because they basically have a backup in their ability to cl clear the lipoproteins, the things that carry cholesterol from their blood. And in a normal person, you know, the average person eats more cholesterol from eggs. They make less cholesterol in their body. They get cholesterol going into their blood. They just remove it. It's not a big deal. It's not, one way or the other, it's not a big deal. Um, but there are some people who, for whom that is not true, and there are some people who, sh who shouldn't be eating eggs. And so if you're going to do a study that says that for every additional egg you consume, there's a 1% increase in your risk of heart disease over five years, and so if you're adding four eggs to your diet, you're increasing it by you know, 4% or whatever, when that comes across in a headline, it sounds like for me as an individual, I have a certain probability that I'm going to get heart disease and that is going to change by 4% if I eat more eggs. When in, in actuality, we probably had the tools right now to, sub, to try to figure out who were the, who were the people, how were they different, the ones that, that died of heart disease. It wasn't like, you know, whether you get heart disease isn't a probability. It's a fact we don't know. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's effectively a probability, but, but there's, there's facts about you that it doesn't make sense to generalize from the average in that population at this point. What makes sense is to try to find how am I unique both from you, from the population, and from me 10 years ago, and from me 10 years from now. And so I think the fundamental premise that we are all different and that our needs change over time, I think that's going to dramatically change the conversation. And I think that was always true. 
that a hundred years ago people understood that the, the people who are more sophisticated understood that but what i think is really going to change the conversation is i mentioned the whole genome sequencing um also continuous data collection with technology is going to change that conversation so we're going to in very short order we're going to see wearables that can sample 30 analytes from your blood just like we're seeing wearables that that's track your sleep or your steps right now that's going to become uh that's going to become continuous data on multiple analytes of interest and things like that and that's going to give us an appreciation of an individual's changing needs over time like we've never had before whereas the genome sequencing i think is going to give us it's going to push us in the direction of acknowledging the differences between people like we never have before i love it the future is coming. Yeah. Chris Bastard. Well, it's here. It's not widely distributed. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you.